Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Anyway, time to look uh, outside our island and uh, around the world for some uh, stories to find out what's happening there. Jonathan de Burke Butler joins us once again. Good afternoon, Sean, Jonathan. Sean, how are you uh, Right, uh, we're going to go to Rwanda first. And uh, this is a story surrounding Miss Rwanda. Yeah, it's the Miss Rwanda beauty pageant, which has been going for a couple of years now. They joined the Miss World competition back in 2016. And ever since then, they've sort of uh, billed themselves as being East Africa's uh, leading beauty pageant, right? Mm. So uh, you can imagine there's a lot of razzmatazz around it and organising it takes quite a bit of work. However, the man who was responsible from day one for organising it has now been charged with sexual harassment and various other um, sexual crimes, shall we say. Um, And he's a 36-year-old by the name of Judona Ishimwe. Uh, He's a former musician known as Prince Kid, and he was taken into custody at the end of April, uh, April 27th, over alleged sexual assault-related crimes, right? So three separate counts. We Mm -hmm. probably don't need to go into the detail of it. But they are all related to this Miss Rwanda beauty pageant and his involvement in it. So as you can imagine, he tried to exploit uh, the situation that he was in and, you know, while he was supposed to be protecting these um, women, uh, he didn't. Um, What's interesting about it is that I suppose not only has the competition itself been stopped, but there's also a former Miss Rwanda who's also been arrested and charged for her part in trying to stop complaints against uh, Mr. Ishimwe from getting to the police. Ah, Um, So she was the 2017 winner. There's speculation that uh, they might have been involved in a relationship. She worked as a personal assistant for him and she's also been arrested as well. So it's caused a bit of an uproar in Rwanda, as you can imagine. Uh, yeah, and uh, but the competition's been suspended now. It has been suspended and there's no talk of it necessarily coming back, at least not for this year, when the minister who's kind of overseeing this, I think it's the Minister for Youth and Culture or something like that, was asked about it. She said, this is yes, an unfortunate title yeah. uh, for such a competition. But um, when she was asked about it, she said... You you know, getting the competition back up and running really wasn't uh, of concern to her. She yes. just wanted to make sure that the investigation uh, w- was was carried out properly. Yeah, so. and, but this would have been run by a private company, by yeah. his company. Yes, so, exactly. Yes, yeah. Yeah. right indeed. Right, Nigeria, and uh, we're going to go to you next. Uh, now, this is uh, um, uh, around, I suppose, the death of a student, but, you know, the, the uh, effect of that around the country in Nigeria. Yeah, well, yeah, it is around the country, I suppose, and uh, but particularly in one state. So there's 36 states in Nigeria, and 12 of them um, adhere to Sharia law, along with state law and federal law as well, as you know, right? So mm. this particular um, count or uh, state is Sokoto, where this particular story took place. So it's population of about four million people. It's up in the northwest of the country. It's about the size of Munster, okay, here okay. in Ireland, right? So it's it's a big enough place, plenty of people. The vast majority of people here, as I said, it has Sharia law, are Muslim, okay, Sunni and Shia. Um, and it's quite a conservative part of the world, which was um, a rather unfortunate thing for this poor woman by the name of Deborah Samuel. She was studying in a college of education called the Shihu Shigari College of Education. And she was involved in a WhatsApp group, right, along with her fellow students. And in that WhatsApp group, there was a discussion around religion. And she dropped a voice message in or voice member, whatever they call it, into the into the WhatsApp group, basically saying that this was not the place for this nonsense. It was taken as being um, a blasphemous comment for some reason by one of her fellow students who spread the voice message around campus. And within a matter of 
half an hour, a mob was out to get her. The local security tried to hide her, but they found her and they took her out and they beat her with planks and stoned her to death. Um, all for making a comment in a WhatsApp group. Um, not much more astounding. to say. That's yeah. astounding. And, and, and there, has anybody been arrested for this? As, um... So there's, there's video footage of this stuff. And I, don't, I don't recommend anybody yes. looks at it. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> two men who were involved in the stoning and, and the subsequent burning of her body uh, appear in a video holding up matches, gloating about the fact of their involvement in this particular crime. Uh, those two suspects have been arrested. They were arrested last Thursday and two days later there was a riot on the streets led by students who wanted them to be released from uh, the prison that they were being held in. That subsequently was, dis- you know, the crowds were dispersed and they subsequently went on a rampage going through targeting Christian shops and, mm. and looting them as well. So it has caused widespread trouble in the region I don't know if it's leaking out so much into, you know, Nigeria yes. uh, as a whole. It's such a vast country, like, but uh, in the area it has. Uh, but as you say, this is an area with Sharia law. And under Sharia law, you can be put to death for blasphemy. Yeah, but you do have to go on some sort of a trial. trial. Yeah, know, well, the, the, not these, just anyone well, can make up their mind, but exactly. presumably that's the logic, yeah, the, the sort of logic that's being operated yeah, here. Yeah, by by the students who, who just went absolutely mad. I, I, I totally get you're not condoning it yeah. at all, but it's... It, 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 it should be said that there was no trial involved here. This was just just as meted out by her uh, by her yeah. fellow students. Uh, and presumably, it's difficult for the, 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 the I assume relatively small Christian community in in this region. Oh, very difficult. Yeah. I, I don't. She she was a Christian actually, but she wasn't from that state. She was from another state further south called Niger, actually, state mm. which is quite big. Right, Mali. We're going to go to uh, next, and uh, they've pulled out of uh, an anti-jihadist force. Yeah, an interesting, because we talk a lot about this region, the Sahel, where there's an yeah. awful lot of stuff going on with Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. Sometimes they're even fighting against each other. And there was a, an organisation called the G5 Sahel Security Force that was put together back in 2017, right, with Mauritania, Chad, Burkina Faso, Niger and Mali. And I suppose because an awful lot of the trouble actually started in Mali, they were in, you know, that connects these five countries. They were an integral part of this organisation, both from an intelligence point of view and what they could offer uh, in terms of military um, manpower and, and stuff. So the fact that they've left is, has thrown this organisation into a bit of chaos, to be mm. honest. Um, but they've left because they feel that they've been insulted by the other four members. So, as I said, this has been going since 2017. And in February of this year, the Mali government, which is a military junta at the moment, was supposed to take over the presidency of this organisation. So what that meant from a political and photo op point of view was that these four countries would have had to go to the capital, Bamako, and take photographs with this military junta, which, of course, makes it look as if they're endorsing them. Yes. When the rest of the wider economic community, ECOWAS, that community that operates there, is imposing sanctions on the military junta because they're not moving to civilian rule or transitioning to civilian rule as quickly as they would like them to be. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting situation. Yeah, and, and Mali's relationship with uh, it, it, 
is has Russia got anything to do with this in the sense of Mali's relationship with you know Western countries or European countries? Yeah. So so before anything happened with Russia and Ukraine, there France and Mali were not getting on particularly well with each mm. other. And, and and the reason there's been two coups in the last two years in Mali is because of this problem, particularly up in the north with Islamic State and uh, Al-Qaeda, right? And, and, and the coups came in because, the, the military came in because they felt the current government, so the government at the time wasn't dealing with that situation. And they felt that the, uh, the help from the French wasn't the best. So when there was rumours that Russian mercenaries were going to come in or that this new junta would come in, the, Fr- the French got out straight away. So there is a bit of a problem because the current government do have a relationship, shall we say, with this famous Wagner group, Mm. Uh, who are Russian mercenaries, but who are kind of connected to the government in in, in Moscow as well, I think. Yeah. Um, So to answer your question, probably France has a major problem with Mali. And this is what Mali are saying, that there are outside forces trying to isolate the current junta. Yeah, right. Israel, we're going to go to next. uh, Now, this is a a court decision uh, that's uh, after a decades long legal battle. Yeah, this is um, relates to an area that has two names, as many of these places in this part of the world do. It's it's called Masafer Yatta, or it's also known as Firing Zone 918, right? Now, it was given that name, Firing Zone 918, back in 1981, okay? I believe it was actually when uh, Ariel Sharan was the Minister for Agriculture that okay, he came... Okay, so this is by the Israelis was given this name. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah. He, he, Ariel Sharan came up with this idea of creating this firing zone, which is a military exercise area on the, in the West Bank. Right, okay where, okay. where people have lived for ages. And this is at the crux of the High Court decision that was made last Thursday, okay. right? So... Essentially, what happened was that they came up with this military zone in 1981. It took years to initially get the Palestinians who were living in these eight villages or in this area out. Okay, so in 1999, 200 families were expelled. There was a case brought on their behalf by the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, right? And there was an injunction put on that uh, particular eviction. Okay, so the 200 families came back pending the decision. And this decision has now come through. It came through last Thursday, which was, uh, of course, Independence Day in, in Israel. OK, mm. so what the court has basically said is that there is no evidence that there were that these families or these villages existed prior to 1981. That's and, pretty astounding. Yeah. yeah. And therefore, it clears the way. It doesn't say overtly that the Israeli government should now go in and evict these people, but it's saying that they can because the Palestinians who lived there since 1948 or since well before 1948, which is what they claim, they're saying that the Israel High Court is saying they didn't live there from since that time. Yeah. And they were squatting on the land since 1981. Right. But And is it their contention that prior to 1981, there was just no one living there? They're saying that there was uh, that it was only used as pasture land. So they're playing up the whole nomadic thing. Right. So they're saying, look, you're you're nomads anyway. So you you know you don't you don't settle anywhere. So how can you say you you lived here? Yeah. And they say they have photographic evidence that proves that they lived in these areas. And and uh, but the, the high court is is not having any. And so from Israel's point of view, that well, they want to use these areas just for target practice, or is that what they're called firing zones? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's that's what they're used for. They say they need that, and the, and the high court in this instance has uh, has agreed with them. Yeah. 
Is there and I, I, is there any more recourse for these people? Don't think so. Uh, yeah. This is what needs to be figured out because the judges, um, the judges' judgment, what he handed down was, um, well, he took it. He took it himself. So I don't think there is any recourse. I don't know if they've found out yet whether there is any um, path to appealing this. I mean, yeah. it's been going on since 1999, so it's been going on quite a while. Yeah, and and no. Uh, even any sort of hint of any sort of compromise. Well, the Israelis did offer a compromise, but the compromise was um, (laughs) we'll let you work inside the firing zone on weekends and during Israeli holidays and for two non-consecutive months of the year. So basically, we'll kick you out of your house, but you can come back and, you know, farm it every now and again when we we let you. Crikey. Right, uh, we're going to go to the Caribbean next. Kind of uh, interesting in the the sense that we think of... uh, um, we think very much of, of migrants uh, uh, coming to a, a, a terrible end across the Mediterranean. It happens in other parts of the, of the world as well. Uh, this was close to Puerto Rico, was it? This was close to Puerto Rico, yeah. And, and exactly what you said there in your, your introduction to this particular story um, is, is that. I mean, we focus an awful lot on, on people coming across the water, the Mediterranean or the English Channel. Um, but it's happening all over the place. And, and this generally involves people coming from Haiti. OK, so this was 11 people, suspected migrants is what the, the article said. They died after their boat capsized um, off the coast of Puerto Rico. So the US Coast Guard were notified to the fact that there was a boat carrying dozens of people. Um, they weren't wearing life uh, life jackets. And by the time the US Coast Guard got out to it, the boat had capsized already. Now, they've managed to save 38 of them altogether. And in a very strange statement, the Coast Guard basically said that the migrants were intercepted at sea and can be returned to their country of origin without costly processes required if they had successfully entered the United States. So, which seems like a very sort of inhumane statement to make, while at the same time saying we've saved them, but we're going to send them back now to Haiti. We've saved tax dollars money. Exactly. It's a strange way of dealing with it. And there's been an uptick in the numbers of people making that crossing, particularly from Haiti, to try to get to the United States because of the violence that's been going on in Haiti. Now, we've covered bits and pieces of it over the last couple of weeks and months, but just last week, 150 people were shot dead across the the part of the island uh, in gang-related violence. So it really seems to be getting out of control there now. Yeah, how long is that trip, I wonder, from, from Haiti? No to idea, Puerto actually. It's a good question. Good uh, question. And how perilous uh, is it? Uh, right, China, we're going to go, or uh, Hong Kong specifically, we're going to go to next. Uh, now, this is it's kind of like a, a, an art heist movie, except set in China, uh, kind of thing. Indeed, yeah. This is three um, Chinese nationals, I believe, uh, who have been jailed for stealing uh, art and antiquities, right? Uh, worth millions, right? So the, the heist happened back in September of 2020, right? They mm. went into the house of a man by the name of Mr. Fu, uh, who was well known for collecting sort of historical items and, and that kind of thing. And they took a total haul worth about $645 million, Right. That's according to Mr. Fu now himself. He was away at the time. Um, among the things they took, however, was a calligraphy scroll written by the former Chinese leader Mao Zedong, okay, which right. was apparently worth quite a bit of money. The thieves, however, were unaware of that and they sold the uh, scroll for 20, the equivalent of about 20 euros <laughs> to some sort of an amateur collector who then took it and cut it in half 
so it could be more easily stored. Right? Oh, gosh. Right. Yeah. So then a couple of months later or about a year later, he sees whatever the crime watch equivalent is on, in Hong Kong and sees the scroll that he's bought from these guys for 20 euros that the police are looking for. So he hands himself in and that leads to the investigation, which leads to the arrest of these three burglars, all in their 40s, by the way. So they were well used to, to going around and uh, they were well-known burglars. And uh, they retrieved the um, they retrieved the uh, stolen uh, scroll. Uh, what was on What was on the scroll? Is it now poetry and the notes of a meeting from the Chinese Communist Party? I don't know from what date, uh, and I don't know what the, what the notes of the meeting said. Assassinate him. Yeah, or something like gonna, that. yeah, a lot of these, yeah <laughs> meetings are quite boring. Uh, really, the 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 defendants though got two and a half years each, each yeah. and it was what six hundred million or something. Six hundred forty-five million, in, according to Mister Fu, now the right. guy who who owned it. So, and and a lot of the collection hasn't come back yet. So, yeah, now that you mention it, quite it lenient, really, quite for a, lenient a, a high stat size. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, I suppose they didn't say anything about against the Communist Party, so that may, that's the key <laughs> difference there in the sentencing Probably policy is. there. Uh, Right, New Zealand I'm going to go to uh, next. Now, this is an interesting uh, policy uh, in terms of uh, land sales in New Zealand. Yeah, it involves the New Zealand Presbyterian Church, right? And they're saying they're going to offer any future land sales to the people of Maori. So they're going to, the, the Maori, sorry, they're going to give them first refusal, right? So mm. back in the 1860s, well, between 1840 and 1870, let's say, but the the real high point of these New Zealand land wars happened in the 1860s. A load of land was taken off the Maoris. Okay, no, no surprises there. It's what was done in imperialism yeah. all over the world. Okay, and the Presbyterian Church, by hook or by crook, has ended up now with land that's worth about 1.5 billion New Zealand dollars, and they have 400 properties around the place. Right, yeah, so they're exactly. saying this is it's the Presbyterian Church. There. Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Okay, just you know, not the case. Anybody was uh, thinking hmm, there's a parallel there, perhaps? <laughs> but go on, yes. <laughs> Give the Catholics a break for once. But anyway, um, they're saying that every now and again, this land comes up for sale. And Mm. what we're going to do to clear our conscience, really, uh, is we're going to offer first refusal um, to any Maori communities that might want to buy it from us. Now, the the question here, of course, is, well, if it's their land in the first place or it was their land in the Mm -hmm. first place, should you not just be giving it back? And they've said that basically what can happen is the churches could make those offers at below market rate. So conceivably, you could have a situation where they'll say, right, give us a dollar for the land and we're done. Yeah. Uh, and they'd get their land back. Now, what they'd use it for, I don't know. Um, whether it would be useful for them in the long run, I don't know either. How that land be given back to the community and how it would be allocated then, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but... It has been broadly welcomed. Uh, right, the, the Maori community have welcomed yeah, this. Yeah, broadly welcomed. They say it's 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 a long time coming, um, but it has been broadly welcomed. Yeah, and it was uh, interesting. They, they had to vote on this. It was a hundred to twelve. I'd love to know who the who twelve, 12 were, were and uh, you know yeah. were, they, were they named publicly. Uh, right. <laughs> so, uh, what should we look out for over the next week or so? Yeah. So Wednesday, International Museums Day uh, is always worth looking out for, uh, and then Friday, I think it's an interesting one. Uh, Seoul and Tokyo US President Joe Biden is visiting South Korea and Japan and he's going to be holding talks with his um, Korean and Japanese counterparts it's a long way to travel Mm. so he wouldn't be going all that way unless there was something important to be talking about Yes, Um, so that could be interesting and then Saturday there are elections in Australia there's been quite a bit of coverage about that so we might uh, might go over that next week 
Yes, it's just uh, Australian politics is, is littered with the most uncharismatic men you, you ever saw in your life. Jonathan, thanks a million thanks as ever. You. Jonathan DeBurka Butler there. We're going to take a break after that. Why did a whale wash up on an Irish beach that shouldn't be in this part of the world at all? Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.